Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietley. You know, I have been in and out of the UFO field for so many years, I can't begin to count them, I think, more than most people have been alive. But it reaches a point where you get really fascinated by the mystery and the majesty of the subject that maybe we're seeing visitors from other planets, other dimensions, and then the infighting. The infighting gets you so damned upset that finally you say, I don't need any more of this. I am going to get back to a regular life. And then something happens a few years later and you make another attempt to get back into it. And that's been my experience in the UFO field. I think it's true for a lot of people. They don't stay in it continuously. They go in and out. Well, I think you have to build a real skin to deal with all of that infighting. I think you have to really be someone who doesn't mind being subjected to mudslinging uh, gene and i've had a good amount of experience with that in the computer graphics industry and and high tech in general you and i both are big supporters of the mac platform and for a lot of years i received all sorts of junk from people about being a mac user so they say get a real computer yeah oh yeah and so you sort of build up a thick skin to stuff like that though in the bottom of your heart gene when it comes down to it, it's all about the tool and how good the tool is. And for my money, the Mac was always the superior tool for getting stuff done. So I, it was somewhat easy to deal with the insults and downright vitriolic sort of abuse that you'd get from PC users. And so I think we both have some experience with that. In the UFO realm, though, um, well, paranormal stuff in general, but UFOs specifically, Gene, it just seems that people do get these positions that they want to guard. They come up with a theory, uh, they come up with a, a pet explanation for the phenomenon, and they grab onto that and they fight for dear life to keep that theory uh, alive. And it's just, oh boy, just in the little bit over a year we've been doing the show, we've already been exposed firsthand to some of that stuff. And on the forums, we see that people get upset with how you and I deal with this Um it's interesting, my girlfriend, who listens to the show, re- somewhat religiously, actually, I, I ask her, you know, what, what do you think about what you're hearing, Susan, and, and how does this come across to you? And she says, David, you sound just like you do in real life. You know, you're not putting on some persona for the show. It's just basically you. And, and I'm opinionated, and I'm passionate about things that interest me. And I think that, Gene, there's no way that that's not going to simply rub some people the wrong way. What can you do, though, right? Well, I think the one thing we have over too many of these shows is that we don't put on airs for people. i got to stop you because now, of course, our listeners are going to write to us and say, oh, here you guys are doing it again. You're talking about other shows and you're putting down other shows and how great you are. And We're not saying we're great. We're really just saying that we (laughs) try to be intellectually honest. I'm not saying that other shows aren't. Obviously, the number one show in this business, I can't believe the host's both hosts, the, the main hosts, although there are some lesser hosts, depending on where the main hosts are at one point in time or another, that they believe all the nonsense that they present on the show. I can't believe that for a minute. I think they are sideshow barkers and that they're presenting stuff that makes for good entertainment, maybe, but doesn't necessarily make for honest entertainment in the sense that you're trying to explore mysteries and trying to discover some answers. I just had an interview with these guys at this uh, kind of fun little radio show called Erie Radio. Right. And they did an interview um, with me. And 
We talked a little bit about this. I think it's important to keep in mind that Coast to Coast does this show every night, and they have to populate it with guests. They have a real daunting task in front of them trying to get people on every night. That's a lot of work. We, we know what we go through just to get guests on once a week. When you have to do that every night, I think you can't be selective. You you essentially have to take anybody who's willing to come on the show. And those guys, Gene, they're collecting big paychecks. I don't know that they even want to have their intellects wrapped up too much in the show because it's it's a job for them. They do a gig. They get paid. They have to fill airtime. They're making a lot of money doing it. You and I are we're not making bubkas here. So what we're doing, we're doing... That would, that would well, be yeah. a really high figure if we made that. <laughs> <laughs> For the non-Yiddish-speaking uh, listeners, bubkas is potatoes in Yiddish. But we do this because I, we do have an interest in the topic, and I know that for some of our listeners, sometimes we come across as being a bit harsh. Certainly, my attitude towards Eric Julian last show was was rough, but at the same time, I feel that he's putting a lot of junk out there, and someone needs to call him on it. And I don't think we started this show at the idea where we were going to make a lot of friends. We actually have made some friends through the show, and that's great, but that's not what this is about. This is about trying to have somewhat serious conversation but look people need to understand that we're going to sometimes get impatient we i don't say that we would get bored with things but when i get a little ornery or i get hot under the collar you know i just i don't censor myself real well it's gotten me into a lot of trouble well the thing is here that's who you are well, sure. Yeah, for better or for worse, usually for worse. Um, but <laughs> You've hung up the phone on me a few times when I may have pushed the envelope and gotten into an area you didn't want to talk about. You hang up well, the phone. That's yeah. You. You know, what am I going to do? I'm, I'm mercurial, just like Steve Jobs, except he's making a lot more money than I. <laughs> well, he's a mercurial billionaire. <laughs> yeah, I'm a mercurial dollarnaire. But uh, ultimately, we're going to do this show because we want to, and at the risk of really sounding egotistical and I'm sure I'm going to get some email about this my stance towards people who listen to the show and they say well we don't like this we don't like that we don't like the direction it's taking I say to them look no one's holding a gun to your head no one makes you listen to this show we'd love to have you here to, to join us for a conversation but if you feel it's not your cup of tea well change the channel this is the nice thing about living in a somewhat free society when it comes to your media you can choose what you want to consume and if you don't want to consume what we have to say if you don't want to participate you know don't there are plenty of other shows out there as it turns out and there are some good ones too i think it's important that we convey to people that it's not like we think we're the only game in town we know we're not at least at least i know we're not and i'm pretty sure you know we're not too well i listen to some of the other games so i know what they do and as long good or bad as if i think a show is being intellectually honest with its listeners i will accept what they do if i think they're putting on a sideshow and entertainment I'll accept it for that but when it comes time to take something seriously you look elsewhere and you have both kinds of shows there and sometimes they cross populate each other sure but that's how things are any case we were mentioning at the beginning here at the outset that I've been in and out of the UFO field for many years, and we're going to be talking in just a moment with someone who has been doing it for 20 years, and now he has decided to go to the exit door, open it, and leave, (laughs) and we're going to find out about his experiences and about why. We're talking about Don Ecker of UFO Magazine, coming up next on the PowerCast. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting our site, theparacast.com. That's theparacast.com right now. Click on the C-Crane sponsor button to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free C-Crane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with James Steinberg and David Biendi. You never know what's going to happen next. Don Ecker, how did you get involved in this crazy UFO business in the first place? Oh boy, UFOs. Well, actually, since I've been a kid, and I'm talking about back in the 60s, I would periodically hear about cases that had surfaced. I mean, my my parents were not really into, you know, stuff like this. Although my father occasionally would find some of this information fascinating, and I'll never forget in 1960, I believe it was 64, 1965, when the Lonnie Zamora case broke. Mm. The police officer that saw mm-hmm. something land in uh, New Mexico. Socorro, right? Yeah. Yeah, and it was uh, it was in our local newspaper. There was an article in there, and I can recall my dad reading it, and after he finished, he called me over and he said, here, he said, you might find this interesting. (laughs) And at that time, there was the beginning of a UFO flap that was happening over the Northeast. Now, I originally come from Pennsylvania. That's where I grew up. And 65, 66, 67, even though it wasn't reported much in local newspapers, there were a lot of things going on. And during that same period of time, the famous Mothman case in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, was happening. And in 1967, around Christmas time, the bridge over the river down there collapsed which was all recounted in in very great detail by John Keel in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. But 
at the time, I was just, you know, I was in school, I was doing, I was playing ball, that kind of thing, and I really didn't give it a lot of thought, but in 1966, I and, and three other guys were deer hunting in uh, an area not too far outside of my hometown, and it was late in the afternoon, we were coming back from this deer hunting trip, a, just a day trip. And uh, we were all high school kids, and we were coming down off this hill when suddenly one of my friends, who happened to be glancing up at the sky, saw something, and he screamed. And I at first thought, you know, oh, Jesus, he saw a deer, and he's going to scare the thing away. And I whipped around and looked, and here were four brilliant white, almost arc-light lights overflying us. And as they were flying above us, and they must have been, I don't know, I'm guessing, because there was really no way to judge it, maybe 12,000, 15,000 feet up in the air, suddenly the light in the rear shot straight up into the sky and was gone within just a couple of seconds, like almost like an Atlas rocket taking mm -hmm. off. And now the three lights, which are in a V formation, had been flying at a relatively leisurely pace, suddenly put on a burst of speed that was unbelievable, and within mere seconds, they were out of sight. Well, needless to say, the four of us were standing there with our mouth down around our knees, and that was my first inclination that there was really something to this. That was my uh, my real beginning of my interest. Was there sound when you saw this all happen? No, no. So it was the this, uh, this the... was this was completely silent. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You mentioned you were in Pennsylvania in the '60s. Do you have any memory of the uh, reported Kecksburg incident? Oh my God, yes. When the Kecksburg case happened, that was only roughly 60 or or 70 miles from my home, mm -hmm. and I recall that also very vividly. Although, you know, at the time, after a day or a couple of days, any news about it just kind of died right. out, right. and it wasn't until many years later when I was doing a very in-depth historical uh, retrospective for my own purposes when I decided to become involved in this field that I got any information about it. Now, over the years, just about anyone worth knowing in the field I've become acquainted with. And Stan Gordon, who still today is a very noted researcher on that, on that particular case, is in Pennsylvania. He's done some wonderful work on that. What's his conclusion about that case, Don? Does he have one? His conclusion? Yeah. Well, you'd have to ask him. I'll tell you, I am rather conflicted about what that ultimately was. Mm -hmm. If you would have asked me this question 20 years ago, I would have told you that I was fairly certain that it was, in fact, a genuine UFO. However, coming up toward the present, I've been privy to information to suggest that maybe we might not be quite as quick to take a, an extraterrestrial explanation for that, that there could have been other things involved, including the recovery of a Soviet satellite or spacecraft of some type mm -hmm. that we illegally grabbed contrary to treaties that we signed with the Russians then. So basically it was a situation here where we wouldn't want to admit that we recovered anything like that, so it's masqueraded as a UFO case. That's possible, yeah. So 
I'm more open to alternative explanations. But I have to stress that I never personally, hands-on, became involved in that investigation. So anything that I'm saying, I've got to be very upfront. It's speculative on my part. Sure. That's an interesting question you raised here, and that is, I wonder myself how many cases out there are indeed government craft of some sort and what percentage of the sightings are that have you reached any conclusions in your investigation about that well yeah you may recall a number of years ago that a historian for the central intelligence agency by the name of gerald haynes came out with a report and stated that many mysterious ufo cases from the 50s and the 60s were actually test flights of secret spy aircraft like the u-2 the sr-71 do you remember that Mm -hmm. well i gotta tell you that that guy in my opinion is either intentionally lying through his teeth Hmm. Or he's simply ignorant. Because if you go back and you research a number of those cases, and you talk or read the uh, interviews done with the primary witnesses, and we're talking, we're not just talking about, you know, Helen Homemaker that saw a funny light flying around in her orchard. We're talking about commercial airline pilots. We're talking about military pilots. We're talking about police officers. And what they said in in many of these cases that these craft, whatever they were, were performing extraordinary maneuvers, something that the SR-71 or the U-2 didn't or wasn't able to do. And besides, you know, if we were to believe that, the question then becomes, these spy aircraft flew at such an advanced altitude that they were basically invisible from the human eye. Yes, someone standing on the ground would never see them looking up. Exactly, exactly. So, you know, you've got to be careful with those explanations. Remember, this was the same period of time that the Air Force would routinely come out with explanations like, oh, well, what the witness saw was actually Venus, when in fact Venus wasn't visible from this side of the planet, you know. I mean, and they were caught many, many times with their hands in the cookie jar with with explanations like that. Right. You read a lot of that in the early Donald Kehoe books where Major Kehoe would report on a case in one of his books, and then he'd report their explanation, which had so little to do with what was actually seen. Kehoe, in my opinion, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, civilian investigators of this phenomena ever. And I've often stated publicly that, in my opinion, the years of 1947 through 1953 is actually the golden age of UFO research because after 53 the government firmly had in place their disinformation campaign on saucers whatever those saucers are the UFO subject was effectively closed off and how many how many you know times over the years I have mentioned in interviews uh, why that is so and it just you know I can sit here I can spout off statistics, names of people, government memos that prove that there is something to it. And it it just, quite frankly, never seems to stick. And, you know, 
in a way, I guess you could say one of the reasons that I'm leaving this this field is simply I'm I'm so tired of butting my head up against a wall with people's preconceived notions about what this is that it's just become an exercise in futility. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the podcast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Don Ecker, who we would call a retiring UFO researcher after many years in the field, he's giving it up and getting back to a normal life, we hope. And we're going to look at his vast experiences as a researcher in this field, all the people he's met, and also the reasons why he's giving it up. I should tell you, I guess, amongst this trio, I'm the only one who's actually met Major Keough. I met him several times. Met him back at Luray, Virginia, I think at a diner somewhere we met him. He didn't allow us to come to his home or anything. We met him at a diner, and we talked to him about an hour, and he seemed like a very pleasant person. And then I interviewed him in the 1970s a couple of times. Again, we had enjoyable encounters. So certainly he set a very high standard for reporting a lot of those early UFO cases before people knew what might be going on. So I'll certainly echo that. But we have that disenchantment coming in to your words and the way you're expressing it. So where did it start to turn sour for you? Oh, (laughs) well, 20 years ago. I guess you could say it, uh, I recognize, look, I had years as an investigator, a police officer, until 1986 when I was injured in the line of duty and I ended up medically retiring. And it was in 1987 when basically this subject kind of jumped up and kicked me in the posterior. And what caused that was in uh, 1987, I was going through a period of physical rehab, and I was, you know, I wasn't working, uh, of course, because I had been injured. I didn't uh, have a lot to keep me occupied other than the physical rehab. So I did something incredibly stupid. I went out and had been thinking about it for some time, and I bought myself a computer system. (laughs) Now, this is 1987, all right? Then I compounded that error horribly by buying a telephone modem for the computer. Fatal last words right there. Yes, which allowed me to uh, get online. Now, back in 1987, even though there was an Internet, it was primarily used strictly by government and academic institutions. Everybody else that had a computer that knew about modems used bulletin boards. BBSs. Yeah, baby. Yes, a BBS. Now, there was was several organizations that had what later would become very similar to the Internet, 
there were groups like uh, CompuServe, Delphi Services, and I forget now what else was available. Well, AOL came on later, but it was really ultra-simplified. I remember spending incredible amounts of money at CompuServe. Yeah, because <laughs> you had to well, pay per hour at the well, time. I had a three hundred. I had a three hundred baud modem. Okay. okay, which today just sounds ridiculous. But I I bought this modem at Radio Shack. I paid a hundred bucks for it. That was a discount. Yeah, and to uh, use CompuServe, <laughs> a three hundred baud modem was six dollars and something an hour. They mm-hmm. charged you by the hour. If you had a uh, a twelve hundred baud modem. Uh, the price shot up to like ten or twelve dollars an hour. It was right. That was my problem. I had the twelve hundred baud modem. That's where I got into trouble. Well, while while on CompuServe, and it, this literally, I stumbled over this forum called Issues, and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I went in there and I started rooting around the files that they had, and I came across a file talking about cattle mutilations. Now, that suddenly energized me because in 1981-82, while I was a lead criminal investigator, I investigated two cattle mutilations. Hmm. And I might add that the case was never solved and that my department swept the case under the rug. That's the only way I can describe it. And suddenly I'm reading about all these cases that have been happening all over the Southwest had been happening in places like Montana, Nevada, Oregon, Idaho, and uh, it was an eye-opener. And what really made it weird was the fact that it was connected somehow to the UFO situation. And then it was the very end of 1987, there was a brand new file that had just been placed up on CompuServe coming from Bill Moore and Jamie Shandera called MJ-12. And I can recall vividly one night sitting there downloading this thing at 300 baud and reading it literally as it downloaded and the, the hair on the back of my neck literally raised up. And I said, oh my God, is this possible? And that was basically when I decided, well, you know what? I've got the time now. I've got the inclination. I certainly have the investigative experience. I'm going to check this out and see if there's anything to this. And that gentleman was uh, was basically my launch. But you asked me about what soured me. As I'm looking at this, on the heels of MJ-12, another paper was uploaded by John Lear. And this was called the Lear Hypothesis. And suddenly I saw these groups of people literally go at each other. Moore and uh, Shandera were saying that this guy Lear was out of his mind. There were people on Lear's side that were coming back and they were claiming, well, Bill Moore is a government agent. I mean, that gave me an inclination that not all was happy in UFOville. <laughs> oh, yes, I know that. I can tell you stories. <laughs> well, we can both tell stories at oh, this point. Yes. Now, Don, you say you were really sort of stunned by what you were reading in MJ-12, in the MJ-12 document. How do you feel about that document today, many years later? Well, I'll tell you, and it only took me a few years to... Uh, 
come to these conclusions, I believe that that document is fraudulent. However, I believe, because I do believe that there is a reality to overall UFO, the UFO phenomenon, I think that this was put out in a fraudulent form to see exactly where it would go by someone deep within the bowels of whatever intelligence agency has their their finger on the button of what is really going on and i might add that i think that the actual number of people in the know are very very small the the actual secrecy of this and i know something about how military secrecy operates. I was in military intelligence special operations when I was in the army and I saw this how it worked in Vietnam because that's when I was in during the war and this is uh, something the the best way to keep anything as secret as possible is simply to limit the number of people that are privy to whatever the secret is and this as we know from from people years past this subject back in the early fifties was according to the canadian researcher and his name now has skipped my mind wilbert smith yes thank you listen i'm old as the hills (laughs) two levels above the h-bomb secret now anybody that knows anything about atomic weaponry know that there's nothing more secret than that except this, according to him. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at one 800 728 2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits gene and i love to hear from our listeners if you'd like to share your thoughts with us Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're exploring many years of UFO investigation from a retiring UFO investigator, Don Eckert. And Don, now learning or discovering that the MJ-12 documents were fake, what led you to that conclusion? Just simply the way they were let out. And by, you see, what I brought into this is my years as a cop. I interviewed and talked to, on a number of occasions, Bill Moore, knew more. As a matter of fact, years ago, we used to get together every four or five weeks and have breakfast 
just to feel each other out and see where we were heading. He was keeping an eye on me. I was keeping an eye on him. Now, that sounds kind of weird, but we were doing that. Now, Shandera was always much more elusive and secretive. But I talked to, to Bill Moore a number of times about this, and there were just too many inconsistencies in my mind to accept all of this at face value. So I guess you could say that it was more my instinct and my hunch and my gut feeling than anything that I could take into court and say, Your Honor, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. This document is fraudulent. Kind of a cop's, now, of a cop's instinct here that as a former police officer, you get a sense where a witness or a possible suspect is telling the truth or not. Exactly. And, and then let us not forget what happened in July of 1989 at the Mutual UFO Network Symposium in Las Vegas, Nevada. I was there in the audience the night that Bill Moore came out and admitted working hand-in-glove with quote-unquote military intelligence to disinform a researcher that ultimately led to the man's mental breakdown and incarceration in a mental hospital. Hmm. This, all this kind of stuff, you know, ran together for me. And I got to tell you, I uh, would be very careful about whose word I would accept on face value. Unfortunately, there's over the years, there's been deceit, deception, outright lying, not from just the government, for example, but from people and the skeptics, but people from within the UFO field. This is truly a minefield. And if you look at the status of things today, it's probably as bad, if not worse, than it was at the height of the contactee movement back in the 50s. Oh, I would argue it's probably worse. We we have so much disinformation now being spread on the Internet. The Internet, at the same time that it opened up the floodgates to information, uh, opened up the floodgates to a whole lot of disinformation. And so now it's really become muddied. And then, I mean, one of the names I want to throw out to you later, uh, Dom, but I'll do it right now. Then you had people like Stephen Greer coming into the fold. On one hand, having all of these people go on record stating that they did have knowledge about government involvement with and knowledge of the UFO phenomenon. But then, on the other hand, you had him with his C-SETI organization saying, hey, if you pay me money and come do a retreat with me, you can summon aliens down from the sky. What's up with that sort of schizophrenic thing going on where you have people who, on one hand, seem credible, but then, on the other hand, bring stuff in that's so outrageous that... It really makes you question everything about them. Why in this field is that so prevalent? Well, first, you mentioned Greer's name. Mm -hmm. Now, when Greer was first entering the fray, and we're talking about back in the very early 1990s, right? he called Vicky and I up. He wanted to meet us for lunch. So we made arrangements to meet Greer for lunch, went down, shook hands, how are you, let's go have lunch, sat down, and then he started very tentatively feeling us out. Now, I have always been one to withhold judgment on the whole UFO thing until all the facts were in. Incidentally, they're still not in. No. And Greer immediately started talking about the benign nature 
mm-hmm. the overall UFO phenomenon and the wonderful aliens behind it. Now, that told me right off the bat, <laughs> this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. So I laid out rather forcefully, in hindsight, a number of cases and examples where people were killed, went missing, or were injured severely. He didn't want to hear that. Yeah. He used the analogy, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a doctor, which, of course, immediately is supposed to excuse all fault. <laughs> and he said, you know, I've worked emergency rooms, and sometimes when they brought in, for example, a kid that was in a car wreck, we've got to do things that hurt them, but it's ultimately for their own good. Well, how in the world can you equate that with some guy going out and then getting radiation burns all over him when he walks up and approaches a landed UFO? Well, you you know something, Don? It's not just that, but kidnapping somebody, somebody sitting there in the sanctity of their home, in their bed, and allegedly, assuming any of these abduction cases are real, they're going in there and they're kidnapping them. They're taking well, them out of their home. If any of that is true, then <laughs> it's not a nice thing unless the aliens think of us as just a bunch of animals. Well, that might be happening. Again, it might not. And over the years, as you probably can imagine at UFO Magazine, I have been, and Vicky too, have been approached by dozens, if not hundreds, of people that have alleged abduction. Now, I'll be the first to tell you, just like I told them, I am not a mental health professional. Now, if you genuinely, truly believe that this happened to you, let's do it the scientific way. First thing you should do, go to your family physician. Have them completely check you out. Mm-hmm. Then... If necessary, I would also arrange an interview with a mental health professional and find out if there are any underlying causes. Unfortunately, what most of these people would do would go running off to an abduction researcher. And in my opinion, many of these people have done more harm than they ever have done good by getting these people, putting them into a hypnotic trance, And I have observed a number of abduction regressions. Kept my mouth shut, but I bit my tongue because a number of these people, I have witnessed them leading the witness. And the biggest example that comes to mind was one case when this abduction researcher asked the person under hypnosis, well, what race of aliens were they? <laughs> now, these, these kind of things are just, they're unconscionable, okay? Yeah. yeah. And uh, so what, what you're dealing with, unfortunately, in this field is the large majority of people that have involved themselves in UFO research are rank amateurs. This is a hobby to them. This is not their primary occupation. This is what they do after they get home from work. And unfortunately, it shows. But, Don, how feasible is it, or how feasible has it been, for there to be people who actually do make this their life calling, given that those people essentially doom themselves professionally to never being able to work in any other field, essentially? Um, you see, this, this is where you get down to mainstream science. Now, if science were honest... If the academic institutions were honest, they would come forward 
and they would say, you know what? There might be something to this. Hmm. Gee, how could I go about really exploring this? Well, I've got an idea. Let's go for a government grant. Now, where does all the money come from for academic institutions? From the government. The, the government, for, for the most okay. part. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're on the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking to Don Eckert, who is a retiring UFO researcher, UFO addict, and evidently he has overcome the UFO disease, and he's now gone to a normal civilian life. We're hoping to do that, so we're going to look over his experiences in the field. Of course, Don, if you are going to accept government grants for your research, then you are, to some degree, tied into their agenda, whatever that might be. That's the hook, and that's my point, okay? That's my point. Now, they will dictate to you on how you're going to spend their money. It's a catch-22. I get into a, a hell of a discussion with Dr. Michael Shermer. And a, uh, a friend of mine who now is, is retired was a university professor, anthropology, by the name of Scott Littleton. And for about three years running, right before Littleton retired, every spring he would hold a two-week, basically, symposium with his students on paranormal subjects, UFOs, that type of thing. And Littleton is a UFO believer. So he called me up and he requested that I come over and address his students. And I did this for about three years running. The last year there, he asked me if I would have any objections to debating Michael Shermer. And I, of course, didn't have any objection. As a matter of fact, one could say, if I may be so rude, as stating that I busted Michael Shermer's UFO cherry on my old show, UFOs Tonight. I had read his uh, response to a guy out here in Southern California about a UFO sighting, and he publishes a magazine called Skeptic Magazine. So I got on the horn, found a number, called him up, and invited him to come down and appear on UFOs Tonight. This is like 10, 12 years ago. And he came down to the studio, and the first words out of Shermer's mouth, and you know, anytime you turn on a UFO special on the History Channel or National Geographic, who pops up as the skeptic? But Shermer these days, now that Phil Class is dead. The house skeptic. Yeah, yeah he's the house skeptic. Sure. The first words out of his mouth to me were, gee, Don, I hope you take it easy on me because I really don't know that much about this subject. 
I swear to God. <laughs> was he trying to be a smart aleck? I mean, no, he was dead serious. Really, he was dead serious. And I've got a copy of the show. I mean, you know, uh, if you heard the guy on there, he's just—he was very tentative, very you know, low key. It, it was an amazing thing. As a matter of fact, I had to put that on a CD and make it available for sale. Everybody today knows who Mike Shermer is. But anyway, at Scott Littleton's last symposium. We go down there, and we start debating. Now, Shermer, now, I'll never forget this either. He came bouncing into this classroom with all these kids in there, all these college kids, right? And he's carrying these big fold-out cardboard displays. And I kind of peeked over at it. And he had had his 11-year-old daughter put up a bunch of fake homemade UFO pictures that he was going to use to dis the subject well pal he picked on the wrong guy okay i love eating skeptics for lunch and we got into it and by the time i shamed him into not even opening these damn things up so we start debating now he started slamming phil corso mm -hmm. the author of the day after roswell who mm -hmm. along with uh, my former partner bill burns uh, co-wrote the book with Corso. Now, regardless of whether you believe that there's something to the day after Roswell or not, whether Phil Corso was telling the God's truth or he was delusional, the man had a stellar military record. Now, I'm a disabled vet from Vietnam, okay? I was wounded over there twice, and I am very active today in Veterans Affairs especially with combat wounded veterans now that we have this damned war going on in the middle east and i have taken a lot of guys to the va fought the va you know for guys to secure their hard-earned benefits and anybody especially anybody that has never served to denigrate a guy that did and put it all on the line just pisses me off <laughs> so we started arguing about this and finally, I had a copy of Corso's book, and I pulled it out, and I slammed it down on this table, and I, I ended up making Mike Shermer admit he had never read the book. Now, if you've never read the book, how can you call a man a liar? And that's the kind of deceit and dishonesty and low-handed crap that we get, unfortunately, from both sides of the aisle, but especially from the skeptics. Well, you just said the magic word, though, Don. You get this from both sides of the aisle. Shermer is another person who has a hard position that he's defending regardless of the facts. He basically has taken out this place that says that there is no such thing as a supernatural reality. There is no such thing as paranormal research. It's all just bunk. And for a guy like this, if a UFO landed on his head, he would basically say, oh, the sky's falling. He, he wouldn't, you know, people like this can't ever let their position go. And you find these people on the UFO believer side as well. In fact, honestly, I think that the ones on the believer side are even wackier because they don't want to have anything to do with logic or reason. They basically just want to believe. And that's it. So does it make any sense, Don, to stake out a place in the middle? Or is the middle position just doomed in a polarized society? No, I've always, my, my sense has always been to go where the facts lead me. Now, mm -hmm. 
I'll give you another example. Do you remember back in the early 90s, the real big abduction flavor of the month was missing fetuses. Everybody and their sister yeah. was having aliens come down and steal their fetus. Right, before they were okay? born. Yeah. Mm. Right. In the first or second trimester, somebody was pregnant, and then suddenly they're not with yep. no explanation. Well, I got to tell you, my uh, skeptical sense raised up when these cases started to hit us, and we happened to have a friend who, to coin a term that Archie Bunker used to use back in the old <laughs> All in the Family, a guy, the guy was a groinecologist, okay? <laughs> a real honest-to-God groinecologist, who, incidentally, I might add, had a very deep fascination in this phenomena, if there was mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. And he had come to us, and he used to travel. The man, unfortunately, passed away a number of years ago. But he used to come to UFO get-togethers and meetings and what have you. Just really was fascinated by this. And we ended up putting him in touch with some of the top abduction researchers of the time. Bud Hopkins, Dave Jacobs. And what this guy wanted to do was to get Hopkins or Jacobs to go to one of these alleged abductees with a missing fetus and say, look, you know what? We've got a real honest-to-God scientist doctor here that wants to confirm what happened to you. And he's going to, with your permission, of course, going to check with your personal physician's documents, records on you, and uh, your pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera, until your pregnancy disappeared. Well, Hopkins or Jacobs wouldn't lift a finger to help this guy. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. I'll tell you that this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Don Ecker joining us to talk about his history as a UFO investigator, why he's leaving. And, okay, so you ask people like Bud Hopkins to get involved in this thing, and they won't do it. Why? Well, that's a question you have to ask Hopkins. I don't know why. I can give my speculation why. Okay. But, 
But why the why from Hopkins or Dave Jacobs standpoint, I have no idea. Well, what's my your speculation, yeah. my speculation is simply this that if this doctor, this gynecologist, if he would have been able to confirm that there was no pregnancy or that something else happened, be it a miscarriage, an abortion, who knows what, what would suddenly happen to the research that these guys had spent years plugging away at? It would evaporate. One, one Better case. to have no publicity than bad publicity. Well, I don't know, Donna. I think a lot of people out there in the in the media world might disagree with the uh, better to have no publicity versus bad publicity. The media world? Yeah. Did you people, say the media world? Yeah. The, you're talking about the biggest bunch of whores in existence. Don't hold well, back, I, Don. Tell us what you really think. <laughs> I've dealt with media out here for almost the entire 20 years that, that I've been active in UFO research. Now, years ago, and believe me, I at one point knew them all because where would they go when a case broke but to ufo magazine to put their own spin on it the people producers from geraldo rivera now can be told hard copy encounters a current affair Sightings. i remember bill bill o'reilly back when he was doing a current affair long before he became the big mm. media buzzword on fox tell us mm -hmm. about bill o'reilly uh-huh Tell us Tell about, about O'Reilly. Yes, yeah. we want the gossip. But these guys, my, my dream, and I couldn't tell you how many times I gave this pitch. These guys from media would come in and, you know, basically they couldn't dazzle me with their, with their brilliance. So they tried to baffle me with their BS and tell me how, oh, boy, this story, you know, this we can really do it. And then it ends up being the tinfoil hat wearing morons, okay, that you always see. What I tried to do was to convince a number of these guys, and, and in some cases women, look, do you want to do a real ratings gut buster? This is what we ought to do. If you really want to work with me, this is my dream. Let's do a documentary on this, but do it from the standpoint of the military. Forget the little old ladies in Peoria, okay, and the ministers in Nebraska that saw a light in the sky. Let's take a look at what the real hard-edged facts were. And I could never convince anybody to do that. Now, media. Back in about 1993, there were some people. Do you remember back in the early 90s, there was a, a magazine that was being published monthly and then a weekly TV show called Spy Magazine? Yes. I loved Spy Magazine. It was, to me, that was like the national lampoon of the 80s and the early 90s. I, I, I no, have to tell you, I, I love them. So go ahead. If, you, if you're going to trash Spy, I'm going to cry. Because they were funny as hell, but go ahead. Please. No, I'm not, I'm not going to trash. No, no. What uh, I was getting at, there were some yeah. people that wanted to do exactly the same thing with UFO Magazine. Oh, so, really? Oh. Yeah, there were, uh, as a matter of fact, we had a, a six-month option that this one media production house had taken out on us. And unfortunately, like so many media deals, they had another administration end up in an unfriendly takeover with this outfit. 
And, and of course, the first thing that they do here in Hollywood is trash everything that the old administration was doing. Right, so it never went right, anywhere. Right, right. Yeah. But one of the guys that was working with me was, and if I told you his name, you would know it. He was a very big producer in the Star Wars franchise. We had sat down and had worked out a weekly format for UFO magazine. And I ended up with my radio producer taking a meeting down at the William Morris Agency. Okay? So we go in there with this pitch for this UFO magazine weekly TV show. And the two guys that came out and met us both looked like they were 12 years old. <laughs> now, as it turned out, these two guys were brothers. And their dad was a wheel down at Disney. And that's how they got their job in there. Mm. So this is a God's truth. We go in, sit down, and we start laying out the format for this weekly TV show. And basically, we had it broken down into three or four segments. And I'm explaining this and telling them about what we're going to do. And the one segment is a pop science segment. And I said, now, guys, just imagine this. For example, we lay out a graphic of the galaxy. And whoever the presenter is explaining that the galaxy is a 100,000 light years across, that if you had a starship that could travel the speed of light, it would take that starship 100,000 years to cross the galaxy. And I swear to God, the one guy held up his hand like a kid in school. He said, wait a minute, I have a question. And I said, yeah. He said, Don... What's a galaxy? Oh, no. Come on. No. Swear to God, true story. Oh, come on. Seriously? Do I sound like I'm joking? Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Yeti. We are talking to Don Eckert, who has spent 20 years as a UFO investigator and says he's had enough. He wants to get back to a normal life. And we wonder how long that's going to last only because of the fact that I have made vows in the past to get out of UFO research and I keep coming back in. So now you take the meeting with these young Gene, Hollywood Gene, I want to ask a question. What's yeah. a star? I want to know what the star is. And, and what's, what's, what's a moon? Well... Let me ask you a question here. Let's let's go back to the beginning. You know what a boy and girl are, right? Uh, X and Y chromosomes, yeah. Okay, Don. So you get, we all get the picture. You meet these infants who are masquerading as Hollywood executives. They don't know what a galaxy is, or at least one of the Bopsy twins doesn't know. What do you do next? I looked at Jeff. I looked at my producer. He looked at me, and it was probably... Three minutes later that the meeting was over, and we walked out of there knowing that nothing, yeah. but nothing happened in there except that a wasted hour of my life. Yeah. I've had no, those that's what I'm saying about that's what I'm yeah. saying about the media out here. They don't have a clue. They could not buy a vowel. And you know, I've been scammed many, many times by well, let me throw this one out. We all remember the alien autopsy, don't we? Oh, Mr. Santilli. Oh, yeah. Who can okay. forget that stuff? Yeah. Do you know why that happened? I don't know. I see a royalty check in there somewhere. But no, it why did it happen? It's my fault. It's your fault? I brought the alien autopsy to America. 
Oh, man. In 1993. You're, you're going to be getting a call from Cal Corf, Don. I hope you're happy. Yeah. Well, you know, I just had something nice to say about him not too long ago. Really? Anyway, I'm sorry. Anyway. In, in uh, <laughs> yes. November of 1993, Vicky and I were invited to give a talk individually at the first joint world UFO Congress in Vienna. Now, hmm. over there in 1993, uh, we met a number of our British colleagues. One of them was Phil Mantle. And near the end of the Congress, Mantle and I were sitting out in the lobby enjoying some delicious Vienna Viennese coffee. And he started to tell me about a story he had just heard that there was some secret footage that had recently surfaced that Steven Spielberg was alleged to have gotten his hands on concerning the UFO crash at Roswell. Hmm. Oh, really? Steven Spielberg. So, this kind of piqued my curiosity. So after I get back, I made some phone calls and some people I knew couldn't really find out much about it. And a number of months later, I get a call, and uh, once again from Mantle. He's still in the U.K. I'm back here in Southern Cal. And uh, he said, hey, I heard that Rupert Murdoch got his hands on that footage I was telling you about. And I said, really? Okay. Well, it just so happened that I knew a number of producers over at Fox. One of them was Bob Kiviot. So I called Kiviot up, and I said, hey, Bob, got a question for you. Uh, and this is what I heard. So I laid it out to him. He said, no, I don't know anything about it. He said, let me do some checking. So he started doing some checking. He got back to me a few days later, and he said, well, he said, yeah, there might be something here. Uh, he said, I talked to uh, my people at Fox. As a matter of fact, the guy that uh, supposedly has the rights to this is a guy by the name of Ray Sam Tilly in London. I'm going to be flying over there to see it. Oh, okay. So he goes over there a couple of months later. I don't know. By this time, it's like March, April. And they get into a long, drawn-out thing about this footage. Now, I've done a number of several part articles on this entire chronology and I'm not going to redo it right here but to make a long story short Kiviet gets back now remember I'm the guy that put him onto this right sure he says Don he said you're the guy that I want to do the investigation on this cameraman okay I can do that go to work for you you bet so time goes on I don't hear from Bob. Matter of fact, I didn't hear from anybody. So I call Bob up, and then the word gets out that this show is going to be aired for the first time in August. So I called Bob up, and I said, hey, pal, if you want yeah. me to do an investigation on this guy, on this alleged military cameraman that shot this footage, hey, we better hurry up and, and uh, get this deal set up. Well, I'll let you know. I'll let you, you know. I'll let you know. Two weeks before the damn program is to air, Kiviet calls me up. This is Saturday night, right after I got home from doing my radio show. It's like 11.30 at night. The phone rings. Now, anytime after 10 o'clock when the phone rings, what's the first thought in your mind? Oh, my God, who uh -oh. died? Yeah. I picked up the phone. It's Kiviet. Now, he had been promising me that I could come down and view this footage. 
still hadn't happened. So he says to me, Don, how would you like to come down tomorrow morning? Meet me at my office at 10 o'clock. You can see the footage, and then we can discuss this investigation. Okay, Bob. Next morning, Vicky and I shoot over to his, his offices in Hollywood. Go in. He throws this tape on. I'm watching this thing. And i got to tell you, at first glance, if you don't know anything about it, it looks pretty wild. Then he says, Don, he says, buddy, are you ready to go to work? And I said, well, Bob, you're not giving me a lot of time. You're going to be airing this thing in two weeks. Yeah, but he said, look, I've got your desk here. Over there is your phone. All this stuff, right, is going on. And up on the board, it, have you ever been into a TV production studio? You oh, know, yeah. they have little slips of paper all over everything. Absolutely. The right at the very right. top. Guess who is hosting this? Jonathan Frakes from Star Trek, The Next Generation. Number Commander one. Commander Riker. Number and then one. Bob, Bob lays the clinker on me. He said, unfortunately, Don, he said, I want you to start to work right away today, as a matter of fact, but I can't pay you. I said, excuse me? Oh, come on. He said, oh, I, it's not in the budget. Ugh. And I said, well, let me ask you, Bob. I brought this damn story to you to begin with. Is Jonathan Frakes getting paid? And he looked away. Oh, well, Don, <laughs> you know. I, I said, well, if you think that I'm coming down here to take myself away from the magazine and work for you for two weeks for free, I'm not going to do it. So that was the extent of it. Now, later on, I caught a number of people in some blatant lies about this, and I came to the conclusion very early that this was a bogus BS story. Now we know that, in fact, it was a bogus BS story. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFO-MAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA. And they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in a- 
podcast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. This is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Don Eckert, telling us about his 20 years of UFO research where he ran into all these BS stories. And I could see why you get soured on the subject. Definitely. Well, uh, Ray Santilli lied through his teeth to me about the, uh, the, the film Leaders uh, because he was one of the very first people when I started originally investigating this for the magazine. I called him up, lied through his teeth. Later, Bob Shell, which is a name that is connected to this. Uh, do you know who Bob Shell is? No. Well, he's a photography expert. As a matter of fact, pop Shell's name into Google, and you'll come up. As a matter of fact, there was a criminal case that he was associated with involving uh, a young woman who had an unexpected demise, which I still don't believe has been settled. But he was very active in tracking down and apparently working hand-in-glove with Santilli and came on my radio show and lied through his teeth to me that he had heard the alleged cameraman's audio taped interview about this which never happened so you know there have been there have been just one lie after another about this and anybody that didn't suspect there was something fishy about this alien autopsy just simply wasn't paying attention but that's just another example of you know years of deceit deception and outright lying that's been associated with this subject so, Don, along those lines, though, we know that there are so many cases that are just completely bogus. In your 20 years, what cases have stood out to you as being truly unexplained, truly, potentially genuine UFO encounters? Well, I, I would, uh, would have to say that Roswell, still, for me, is one case that bears a whole lot more examination, as strange as that may sound. And if it were for no other reason, simply because of the continuous lying and deception that came from the U.S. government. And two cases that I broke nationally involved the STS-48 shuttle mission from mm-hmm. September 1991 and its encounter with a UFO above Australia and the Soviet Union's Phobos 1 and 2 mission launched in July of 1988 and the subsequent encounter of Phobos 2, the space probe, with an absolutely stupendously huge unknown in Mars orbit that apparently destroyed it. These are are cases that, well, let me regress for a moment. 20 years ago, when I made that decision to enter this, this field of research, and with full intent of trying to do some, some good actual investigation into this, I thought that with just the right case, with the right investigation, with the right circumstances, this would suddenly become palatable to mainstream media and mainstream science. I mean, after all, what is science supposed to do? Investigate the unexplained, not explain the uninvestigated. 
which is what they have been doing. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, mm-hmm. I might add what they're still doing now. But with these two cases, the Phobos 2 case and the STS case, I was sure that somebody had to sit up and take notice. And, you know, both those cases, I did, well, STS, first on NBC, then on CNN with Larry King, deafening silence from the media. Nobody, but nobody was interested. Same thing with the Phobos 2 encounter. And, hell, I came up through the Russians with the last photograph that their probe took before it was struck and the Russians themselves at the time said something hit their probe and destroyed it before it was struck by this huge unknown and uh, nothing I mean nothing nobody would even talk about it so you know you've got to tell yourself at some point you know what Don the fix is in You're just beating a dead horse. What is the use? This will, in my opinion, this phenomena will never be examined or have a genuine explanation unless whoever's flying those damn pesky UFOs decide to land in the middle of Washington, D.C. And, you know, that that brings me back to Larry King. Well, it almost raises another question, though. They go to Washington, D.C., and they land. And we have the old vision of saying, take me to your leader. Where are they going to find that leader in Washington, well, D.C.? That's, that's a good that's question. That's beside the point. That's <laughs> beside the point. Sure. The, the real point is that had whatever intelligence is behind this phenomenon wanted to land, they could have landed anywhere publicly. But whatever it is that they are doing, they have their own agenda. And it is apparently one that they're keeping to themselves, Mm -hmm. and they have absolutely no inclination to share it. You know, that's like Larry King. Now, now there's a guy that, talk about a BS artist. This is a guy (laughs) that just simply must not have any intellectual curiosity at all. I mean, you know, his really telling, insightful remarks were something like, well, Don, tell me, why don't they land on the White House lawn? Well, Larry, because they don't want to, you know? Well, Don, isn't he just reflecting the level of sophistication and engagement with the topic that the average person has? I think that media personalities like that are just reflections of the mainstream. And what's clear, I think, from so many angles is that the mainstream really only is interested in this as far as an entertainment source. That well, this absolutely. Really- You're absolutely correct. Ratings is what it's all about. Right. They, right. they give not a tinker's damn for uh, the actual facts of the situation, but if they can juice it up a little bit, sexy it up a little bit, get some ratings, then you've got something. But as far as what the actual facts are, they have absolutely no interest at all. And that's been my experience with most media. Now, not all media. Now, let me take a second and give a genuine, heartfelt, well done to people like George Knapp, George mm-hmm. is a investigative television journalist down in Las Vegas. He's been with KLAS Channel 8 for years and Sure, years. We've, we've had him on the show, absolutely. He's a, he's a fascinating guy and, and is doing some really good work. Of course, I could throw one name out there to, to really stir up the pot, which would be Bob Lazar. George Knapp basically broke Bob Lazar, didn't he? Yes, he did, back in 1988. Mm-hmm. 
originally, mm-hmm. yes. There is a strange case. Now, I've been involved off and on with that case since Knapp originally broke the story. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and David and I are talking to Don Ecker. Concluding 20 years of UFO research with some measure of frustration. So, for those who are tuned in late, maybe give people a brief idea about the Bob Lazar story and your take on it. Well, first, let me say that I met Lazar on a number of occasions, as you read in my paper. Mm -hmm. Uh, I've been down there, I've interviewed him, I've had him on my radio show three or four times on a personal level. I never liked the guy, quite frankly. Just simply did not like him. Nothing to do with his story. There was something about his story that I always found intriguing and very odd. And if for no other reason, the fact that he was able to take a number of people out, this is before his story broke, I might add. This is back when uh, nobody knew there even was a Bob Lazar. But he took a number of people out to the desert near Rachel, near the Groom Mountains, to show them something that was flying around those mountaintops performing impossible maneuvers. They videotaped it, too, by the way, and I saw the videotape. And they did this and then got caught by security. Now, this is after Lazar had allegedly worked out at Site S4 at Area 51. Now, did he? I don't know. I wasn't there. But one of the things that always intrigued me when I talked very frankly and off the record with George Knapp, who was the guy that, I mean, George, if anybody knew, George knew. George had, over the years, talked to a number of people that gave him their bona fides that they had, in fact, worked out there. And Lazar knew things, because Knapp tested them, 
knew things that only somebody that worked out there could know. For example, like where's the cafeteria? What color are the walls? How did you get from point A to point B? And Knapp was very satisfied with his answers. Hmm. And then the fact that he also had worked at the uh, atomic labs down in New Mexico. His name was in the damn book. And something that many people today may not be aware of, but the father of the hydrogen bomb, Ed Teller, knew Lazar. And Lazar had said from the beginning that it was Teller that originally got him an interview with EG&G when he was hired to work out of the test site. All very strange stuff. How do so, we know Teller knew him? Well, Teller was interviewed on television. I saw the videotape. Mm -hmm. And they were running the tape when he was being interviewed. This was down, I'm pretty sure this happened in Nevada. And they left the camera running. And one of the interviewers for this TV show, and it was on something completely different, not the Lazar story, asked Dr. Teller, well, if we ask you if you know Bob Lazar, what are you going to say? Teller looked right up at this guy, and he said, if you ask me that question, I will say nothing. Well, what the hell? If he didn't really? know Bob Lazar, he would have said, oh, I don't hmm. know Bob Lazar. But that's not what he said. He oh. said, I'm going to clam up. Now that, I don't know how that hits you, but it hit me that this guy sure as hell knew Bob Lazar. Interesting. And like I said, I saw the video. So, I don't know. It's a very, very weird, very strange story. And, you know, there is one, one other thing I might add. That Bob Lazar never did what everybody else did when they became a quote-unquote star in the UFO field. And that was go to every UFO meeting, every MUFON symposium, every time somebody invited them and get up there and give his spiel. He wanted nothing to do with it. He didn't make any money from this. He wasn't out to get notoriety or whatever it is people look for in this field. So that, in my book, is a plus for the Lazar story. And he never changed. He never changed his basic story of how he got involved and what happened to him. He didn't embellish so, it. So you're you're saying then that uh, you think it's, it's possible. in my gray basket. It's in your gray basket. Okay. Let's let's toss out some other names and see what baskets they fit into. I'm I'm curious about this because if we're going to talk about specific personalities, then for example, if I throw out the name Art Bell, what would you say? Bell is an enormously, was an enormously popular radio guy, UFO, primarily UFO radio guy, who unfortunately took the P.T. Barnum route mm -hmm. and had every questionable character and fraud in the world come on his show and never once questioned them critically. Now... I could throw out some other names, like Ed Dames, Dr. Doom, from the former remote viewing program run by the DIA, who for years has been passing himself off as a remote viewer, when in fact he was never a remote viewer with the DIA. He was a monitor. He worked with the remote viewers. But this guy from day one, and I've talked to some of the remote viewers, 
some of the real ones that were in that program, including Ingo Swan, whom I know. And uh, this guy always had a UFO fetish, if you will. And when Art would have him on, invariably, the predictions and prophecies that the dames would come out with and i can tick off a couple real quickly and they just really quite frankly this pisses me off because bell never hold him held him to account in one case during the time of the hellbop comet he came on our show and said you know art i remotely viewed a canister that was released from that spaceship and this canister is filled with a plant pathogen that's going to kill all vegetation on the earth it's going to land in africa and within one year all plant life and vegetation is going to be dead now this was immediately after another prediction he made and i confronted him incidentally at a mufon get together down here in la that he was speaking at where he claimed that he had remotely viewed a giant alien ship it was going to be landing in New Mexico with a dying alien race and that these dying aliens were going to be encased in some kind of gel and they were going to be flying down here and nobody would be able to hide this. This was going to happen. And by God, they're looking for our help. Well, you know what? Guess what? Never happened. Just like this plant-killing <laughs> pathogen. Or the 300-mile-an-hour jet streams that were going to impact the Earth. And a new unexplained bovine virus that's going to wipe out all our livestock. Just and add this to all the predictions that never happened. This is so many predictions you've heard on Coast to Coast Never Happens. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me just tell our listeners, this is the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Don Eckert. Leaving the UFO field, I guess... And I really, really dislike BS artists. I almost said that other word. Well, that's okay. (laughs) Now, what about the person who does the Coast to Coast show during the week, George Norrie? Is he better or worse than Bell? I turn on George when when I'm having a hard time sleeping. (laughs) 
Okay. Well, I guess I, George I, I like is not going to let you on the show, David. I know you want to get on that show to refute what? something said yeah. by another person who we, we're not going to mention, but we'll mention Yeah, anyway. we will. All right. Yeah, we will. Hey, Don, Michael Horn. There, I said it. <laughs> well, now there, there's another perfect example of a yeah. BS artist with delusions of grandeur and the Billy Meyer. How many times does the Meyer material have to be shown to be a total bogus hoax? You know, I've got a very, very good friend who's a well-known television and, and film star, Dwight Schultz. And Dwight was uh, Lieutenant Reg Barkley on Star Trek on a number of, you know, oh, the next he's generation. Great. Yeah, Voyager. sure, sure. He's a really great actor. Yeah, he's of really course, good. the A-Team. The A-Team, which right. he was howling Mad Murdoch. Now, when Dwight and I first became friends about 15 years ago, he used to be a long-time listener of my, my old radio program, UFOs Tonight, because he said he always appreciated my no-holds-barred approach to this information. So I had been uh, mentioning that I was going to be giving a speech down at the Santa Monica Museum of Flying one weekend. And lo and behold, he showed up, came in, introduced himself, and we really liked each other, and we started swapping stories. And he told me that off and on for years he had had a real fascination for UFO information, the good stuff. He used to listen to Long John Neville back in the uh, 50s Gene's and favorite. 60s. <laughs> and he remembered when when Donald Kehoe was on Mike Wallace's show, and he was sandbagged by Mike Wallace. And incidentally, uh, Wallace, Dwight tried to get Wallace three or four times to address something he did to Don Kehoe in the 50s, where Kehoe came on his show, talked about four documents that proved the reality of the UFO phenomenon, and according to uh, what happened, Wallace said, well, you know, Major Kehoe, I checked with the Air Force on these alleged four documents, and they said that three of these documents don't exist, and the one that does exist doesn't say what you said it said. Well, to give Kehoe a lot of credit, he maintained to his guns that, yeah, what I said was correct. Well, we know today that he was correct. Those documents over the years have been have surfaced, or people have come forward and admitted that they did exist. Wallace has never been held to account for that. So Dwight was telling me about this, and I said, "Well, have you seen any good UFO photographs or videos recently?" And this is the point that I'm getting at. He said, "Well, you know." He said, actually, yeah. And Dwight had a beautiful entertainment center with a laser disc player. And uh, a really, I mean, this was a giant screen. Before there were giant screens, he bought this thing back in the late 80s, and he paid about 35 grand for this setup. And he had heard about these wonderful Billy Meyer oh, photos God. of this spaceship. So he sent away, spent, I don't know, 35 <laughs> bucks, got this laser disc of these videos. He said, I popped it in, turned it on. He said, my God, within 30 seconds, I knew that this was bogus. How could anybody <laughs> believe this? And, of course, in the interim, we know about the time travel pictures that they were phonied up yeah. with little 
toy dinosaurs. The Mars pictures. How does anybody take this guy seriously? A sucker's born every moment. P.T. Barnum knew it. P.T. Barnum. He knew it. And actually, I hate to admit this, but that laser disc that you're talking about, I own that laser disc as well. Is <laughs> that's that right? my collection. That's absolutely right. I, that's actually a pretty rare laser disc, as it turns out. Well, why don't you and, sell it uh, on eBay or ask for a refund? Nah, 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 nah. <laughs> I'm going to do some art with it at some point. Like I said to you guys, man, I've been looking for years to meet this semi babe. <laughs> yeah, but what is your wife going to think about it? What is Vicky going to think that this semi comes you gotta, over and. You got a babe. You. you don't need semi Your babe is real, Don. You don't need the fantasy babe. All right. Another name for you, Clifford Stone. I'm really curious to see what you say about this guy. Well, Cliff fell into the delusional bin many, many moons ago. Mm-hmm. And he unfortunately never came out. He's one of these guys that believes what he tells you, no matter how ridiculous it is. Now, many, many years ago, I had a lot of respect for his ability to dig out documents. But like so many people in the field, as time went on, he became more essential, his participation to each story that was told. Mm -hmm. Now, what really was the final straw for me, and this was about 10 or 12 years ago, he had written this story of daring do in Vietnam that uh, unfortunately was published in UFO magazine, how in Vietnam at night with the Viet Cong roaming around, he would crawl through the barbed wire to go out and meet his UFO contact. And when I saw that article, I became incensed because of a lot of reasons. I knew this was crap. It was bogus. It was it was untrue. So I wrote a companion piece to it, and I tore Clifford up. Why this was bogus? Why this couldn't be true? Why this was delusional? And that was the last time I ever talked to him. Mm. I wonder why. <laughs> I, you know, it's, it's about the BS, guys. I mean, this field is got enough factual evidence that you don't need the BS. And you don't need to project yourself in every case going all the way back to Roswell. Now, Cliff, unfortunately, to show that this isn't a single occurrence, had managed to project himself into the Kecksburg case with three different versions how Mm. he was involved with Kecksburg. First, he was actually there. Then he wasn't there, but his contacts told him about it. And then he remotely viewed it or something. Can now you explain look, to our listeners just what this is? What? This particular the case. The Kecksburg case? Yes. Yeah. In 1965 in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania, something came down from the sky, and there was apparently a very detailed military retrieval operation that cordoned this area off. They went in, picked up this object, and then skirted it out in the middle of the night and for many years afterwards left people wondering what exactly had happened there. 
Now, it's been suggested that what actually came down was a UFO, a genuine UFO. There are other people that have suggested that it was very likely a Soviet satellite and or spycraft of some type that came down and crashed that American military and intelligence picked up. Whatever it was, we don't know. That something, in fact, did happen there is is beyond uh, question something did and over the years there have been a number of people that have done some very in-depth investigation on this case including stan gordon who resides back in pennsylvania a longtime ufo researcher right somebody that really knows his stuff and he's really dug into that case in great detail here's another name for you don one that i think a lot of our listeners are not familiar with but uh, Royce Myers has told me many great things about him. I'm curious to know, what are your feelings about Russ Estes? Well, I knew Russ very, very well. Russ died several years ago with complications from diabetes. As a matter of fact, for quite a while, Russ and I had a very close friendship. As time went on, Russ became more irascible, I guess you could say, in his old age. He uh, was ill. But when he was doing his UFO research, he did a bang-up job. As a matter of fact, one of the real Wazoo cases that impacted Vicky and I and Russ for a couple of years involved a, uh, a TV show that uh, he was filming, which was a multi-part kind of a documentary thing on the whole UFO thing. One of the people that he interviewed was a guy by the name of Harley Bird. Mm-hmm. Now, Harley Bird was a uh, guy that actually was a sex offender, had been busted over in Van Nuys for, well, um, this is a family program, right? So for exposing himself, shall we say. But for years, he claimed to be either the nephew or the grandson of Admiral Richard Byrd, Hmm. and that he had some of Byrd's top-secret information about the Hollow Earth, which is another story that's been floating around for many, many years. A Hollow Earth story. Well, as it turned out, he was absolutely no relation to Admiral Byrd. Russ had gone to uh, family members, interviewed them, talked to them on the phone, what have you, and basically proved that this guy was just simply not telling the truth. Now, in the meantime, when he had gone out to interview Harley, he got out there, it was set up through another very questionable guy that was kind of on the periphery of UFO stuff out here in Southern California. And uh, he went in, and there was Harley dressed up in a phony military uniform. He had some kind of medallion or medal hanging around his neck. He was wearing a set of eyeglasses without any glass in the frames, and he was all set to do his shtick, which he'd been doing for years out here. Well, Russ, then he interviewed me. I knew some things about this guy and about his information, and uh, suddenly Harley realized that we weren't buying this stuff. So he went on what turned out to be a two-year rampage. And he would send us phony documents in the mail alleging that he was filing suit. He even had a uh, one of these uh, court TV 
shows, call me up at UFO Magazine, wanting to know if I would be willing to go on TV to debate this case with, with Harley. And I said, well, to begin with, there is no case. This guy is delusional. He's, he's a whack job. And uh, to answer your question, hell no, I wouldn't dignify it by going on TV with this moron, <laughs> even if the case was real. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com That's www.rockoids.com Attack, Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. Hey, let me tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and time is running short, and we really haven't covered all the names that we want to drop. Well, there's just a little more with this I, wa I wanted to tell you. Okay. And in the interim... Harley is going on Art Bell's show, which he actually did. So Russ called me up, Russ Estes, and he said, Hey, Don, did you hear the latest? And I said, No. He said, Well, guess who uh, is on Art's show on, I think it was a Friday night. And I said, Who? He said, Harley Bird. I said, Oh, my God, this ought to be rich. So he said, Well, you know, I'm going to try to call him up. So he called up Art, told him who he was, and offered to send Art all this information to prove that this guy, in fact, was a whack job. And Art didn't want to hear it. Mm -hmm. Didn't want to hear it. He, but then he invited, he invited Russ Estes. He said, uh, how about you? How would you like to come on and debate him? And Russ says, uh, no. He said, well, what about Ecker? He said, I'll call Ecker. So he called my office and I wasn't there and he left a message wanting to know if I would go on the air and debate Harley and I'm thinking you know what what the hell's wrong with this guy we tried to warn him simply out of common courtesy as one media professional to another and Art for whatever reason didn't want to hear it so we ended up bringing Harley on and within the first hour Art lost Harley's connection and guess what? Couldn't get him back on the air. Yeah, big surprise there. I want to throw a name at you, uh, Don, that I don't really know much about, but every time I read something he writes, 
I am perplexed as to what language he's speaking. And you may not even know much about him, but I'm just going to throw this name out. Alfred Lemberg. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to me, believe this. Yeah, you're not going to believe this. But Hit me. when when Hit word us. got out that I was leaving UFO research, and uh, Kevin Randall basically quoted several things from my paper that I wrote. Yeah. Lemberg wrote this long diatribe, and I read it four times, and I couldn't understand it. So (laughs) as as it happens, I had a phone call from Earl Bruce Knapp, who runs the UFO update list out of Canada. It's a great list. Yeah, definitely. And I asked Earl, I said, do you know this guy? He said, oh, yeah, I talk to him periodically. And I said, well, (laughs) then maybe you can tell me. I said, but I read this uh, uh, this thing that thing. I put up on the list yeah. about my leaving, and I couldn't understand it, I, so I reread it four times, <laughs> and I don't have a clue what the guy was saying. Do you? And he said, no. He said, that's Alfred. And I said, oh, my God, and to think that he has a column in UFO magazine now. Oh. Hey, let me drop one more name on you, and I think we're just near the end of the session. Jim Mosley. Well, I'll tell you, if Jim Mosley and I were walking in the desert and we were a thousand miles from any water source and Jim self-combusted in front of me, I wouldn't piss on him to put the fire out. Oh, okay. <laughs> wow. Oh, boy. That's... I think that man has, has done nothing to elevate... UFO research. The only thing he has going on in his life right now is that rag that he produces, saucer smear. And it's simply, it's about the lowest common denominator for the most part of anything having to do with UFO research. I mean, here's a guy who has admitted hoaxing some very big cases in years past. And he's a grave robber. Okay, he actually did time in jail, and he robbed graves down in Peru. You know what? What's good about that? Oh, gee, really? Wow. Jim was actually going to write a book about his experiences in Peru. We have just a couple of minutes left, and I wanted to ask you, Don. Obviously, the infighting in the UFO field, the disinformation, we can understand why it soured you on everything, and certainly from what you tell us, we can see why people would not want to touch UFOs with a 10-foot pole. Is there anything out there other than the landing itself that could bring you back? No, I'm done with it. And when I'm done with something, I'm done forever. You know, this is 20 years I put into this. And I I feel actually less informed now than I Mm. did 20 years ago. And when you reach that point and you see the level of people calling themselves researchers that don't have a clue, can't buy a vowel, it's time for me to to get out of Dodge. But you can't get out before I ask you about the name David Sarita, Don. (laughs) You can't leave. I stopped smelling ozone a long time ago, okay? (laughs) So these these people that stay in the ozone, you know, they're going to have to handle it themselves. Yeah. So should we even cover this anymore, Don? Are we wasting our time on the Paracast talking about these topics? Oh, that's something that you would have to decide for yourself. You know, everybody takes away from this field basically what they originally put into it. Mm -hmm. And as long as you have an intellectual curiosity about this, you know, my suggestion is, you know, go where your heart leads you. Right. But for me, it's come to an end. Hey, thank you very much. 
Don Eckert for joining us this week on the Paracast and explaining why he's had enough of UFOs. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Don. We, We really, truly appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. No problem. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You know, it's really sad that people like Don Ecker get so disgusted with UFOs. I just want to look for the nearest exit. Yeah. I'm, I can't say I'm shocked, though, Gene. I, I know that in the last year and some months we've been doing the Paracast, I've had that same feeling a few times. I've just gotten so frustrated. And I uh, really actually have to say it's my girlfriend that has been the one to tell me, hey, you're doing something good with this and you're going to run into some opposition and that's natural and she said to me you're opinionated and that gets you into trouble as well so you've dealt with this before deal with it now and uh, her support means the world to me so um you know i've had to talk with you you said to me hey we're, we're getting some momentum here let's keep going with this indeed every month we get more and more downloads of our show more and more people are using the forums to express their point of view more and more people are joining i think despite the fact that we have a budget of zero dollars yeah for this show it's gaining traction and is a reason we're out there and i think there is a need for it but i understand the feeling of disgust with ufos because i've gone back and forth with it for so many years i understand exactly where don ecker is going and where he's at with this thing i just hope that he'll come back anyway occasionally just to talk because he has so many things that we talked about after the thing was finished. Don was telling us a lot of things. Yeah, we I kept on recording. We, we should have kept record. on recording, God knows. But uh, 
next time. We were just, yeah, I guess some stuff you didn't want to say on the air either. But it's good to know that some of the people we've had ne- negative experiences with, he's corroborated that these people are just whack jobs. And at the same time, it makes me wish that we still did have people like Russ Estes around. I know that Royce Myers can't say enough great things about Russ Estes. I, I wish he was still here. We need people like that in the field. And I don't want to in any way presume, Gene, that you or I could achieve that level because you're too old and I'm too cantankerous. And so sometimes there's no difference. Well, I guess that's true, but we've already made our, our, our little group of enemies out there. And that's not something that I think we intended to do. It just seems to happen when you have strong opinions, but to know that there are people that have done good work. And I really do think that Don is one of those people. I think that it's sad when people net like that leave because who fills that vacuum? Who steps in? And, and at that point, it's a 50-50 chance that you're going to get either another person with integrity or another charlatan. I mean, you never really know. Unfortunately, the way that things seem to work in our society these days, it's more than likely that it'll be a charlatan that steps into his shoes and that pushes some crazy agenda of nonsensical stuff that doesn't ultimately get us any deeper level of understanding. Well, then uh, that also shows that people who can express logical points of view, who are interested in learning what's going on and not in selling a new book, mm -hmm. they're needed. They're really needed. Mm -hmm. I I sometimes wish that I had done things differently during the dot-com years. You know, I have to share this with you because... Something I don't really, we don't really talk about in the show is that, you know, you and I have been involved in technology for years. And there were a few times in the dot com boom years when I thought that, yeah, I could have made some kind of a financial killing. I could have come up with some idea for some silly website and just done it out of a motive to make money. And I could have ended up maybe with a bunch of cash before the dot com boom happened. There are some people in the industry who did that who I felt really didn't have any real capabilities, but they were just savvy. They were in the right place at the right time, you know, and they made their 50 million or a hundred million dollars. I really wish sometimes that I had different priorities back then and that I had made that financial killing so that now I could spend the rest of my life devoting my time and financing the time of other, of others to looking into these topics in some kind of a serious organized fashion with some resources i know that we've done this show and we do what we're doing really with no resources i i sometimes wonder what it would have been like to have had real money to do this i suppose maybe we'll find out more likely than not though we probably won't and sometimes that bums me out a little bit you read about things like um oh god just today i read that the guitarist from u2 the edge just spent 50 million dollars on a house somewhere in the in the Los Angeles area and I think man what would one fifteenth of that money do for our show you know so I mean that that's neither here nor there we do what we, we can do we, we have the I think the right intentions and I, I think that, also you know, that having the right intentions sometimes does get the proper degree of attention and so I, w- I wouldn't feel so disheartened because we have so many more topics, so many more interesting fields, so many more interesting frontiers to explore on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. 